to Wrong Place, Right Crime. This is your host, Frank Zafiro, and we have a great show for you here today. Uh, we're going to be talking to S.W. Loudon, the Anthony Award-nominated author of the Greg Salem series, and also Crosswise, the book he was nominated for. Steve is an interesting guy, and he has some uh, great thoughts on the uh, punk scene, uh, how it relates to indie books, and uh, how we should look at this whole endeavor that we're all engaged in. But before we get to Steve, let's hear from our sponsor. Wrong Place Right Crime is sponsored by Down Out Books, and here to tell you what's going on at that publisher is the chief editor and founder, Eric Campbell. Hey Frank, this is Eric Campbell with Down and Out Books. It's been an insanely busy 2017, and 2018 doesn't appear to be slowing down. I want to tell your listeners about a couple of books that we've got coming out in the month of January that they can pre-order now. First up is May by Marietta Miles. Readers are going to be introduced to May, a lonely drifter, small-town weed dealer, who spent years running from her ugly past. While prepping for a huge storm to hit her sleepy island home of Foley, she finds most of the islanders have evacuated, but she's, she's not the only one remaining. Two boys tweaking, looking to score before the storm comes, desperate, while one grows more violent. To save the boy and herself, May must learn to be bad. Dana King brings back his P.I. Nick Forte in Bad Samaritan. Nick gets involved in a disturbingly ugly case involving prostitution, blackmail, men's rights activists. For Nick, the resolution may leave him permanently damaged. Charles Salzberg, author of the Henry Swan Mysteries, says Bad Samaritan is a throwback to a classic tough guy, politically incorrect B.I., who takes care of business. And Dana King is a master at creating a low-down, dirty world where everyone needs someone like Forte on their side. These books are available now. You can get them for pre-order from the Down and Out website, downandoutbooks.com. And Frank, as always, thanks so much for having me on the show and for your support. Thanks, Eric. Uh, you know, I've said it a million times, folks, and probably every episode you hear me talk about uh, what a great place Down and Out Books is, uh, how proud I am to be a, a part of that uh, of, of that publishing uh, house. And uh, actually, uh, S.W. Ladman and I... Uh, have that in common as he also has some books from uh, from that publisher and so without further ado let's get into our discussion with S.W. Loudon. Uh, well welcome to the show Steve. Frank thanks so much for having me on I appreciate it. Uh, for those of you just joining us it took us about a 45 minutes of technical difficulty to get to the point where we're actually talking in a way that Steve doesn't sound like Mickey Mouse so that's a good thing. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, Technology is a wonderful thing. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hang myself if I if we get to the end of this and it uh, it's screwed up. That's a fantastic transition into the theme of my third Greg Salem book, Hang Time. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a surfing reference. <laughs> well... It, it, there, there's double and triple and quadruple entendres with the title of that one. Well, let's start there then. Greg Salem is kind of your um, flagship series, right? Uh, yeah, it was definitely the first book I wrote and published, uh, which is an important distinction because I've written books before that never saw the light of day. But the first book I wrote and published was the first Greg Salem book, which is Bad Citizen Corporation. And tell me about that. 
it, you know, it's set in the along the coast in Southern California where I grew up. Um, I've kind of heavily fictionalized my hometown and the two towns near it and turned it into one big town. But basically used the uh, hardcore punk scene as the backdrop for the story of Greg Salem, who is a former punk singer um, and a disgraced police officer who kind of comes back to his hometown with his tail between his legs and ends up trying to solve the murder of his best friend. And in so doing, uncovers uh, sort of the dark side of the sunny beach communities where he lives. So a lot of this is drawn from your own experience, or at least uh, the, the the jumping off point is from your own experience, and then you fictionalized it pretty heavenly? Uh, yeah, I mean... I, I was part of the punk rock scene in the town where I grew up and, and, and that area, Hermosa beach in particular is sort of considered the cradle of a lot of Southern California, hardcore punk rock uh, bands like uh, black flag and, and circle jerks, et cetera, uh, came out of that scene in the eighties. And that was sort of the music that I grew up listening to. They're a little bit older than me and my friends, but that those are the guys we worshiped. So I, I, I kind of used that. And then, I played in bands for years and then I ended up kind of transitioning out of hardcore punk and into more mainstream alternative rock types of bands. Um, and you were a drummer. I am a drummer. Yeah. I don't really play that much anymore, but I, I played drums in a lot of bands basically starting in the late eighties all the way through the early two thousands. Oh, wow. That's a pretty long career. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, career means that you get paid, which only happened a few times, but, uh, <laughs> I have some blurry memories that are quite a bit of fun. Uh, but so, yeah, I, you know, I use that, that, that punk rock, that hardcore scene along the beach as the backdrop. And then what I really did was, you know, really tried to imagine what my life might have been like if I had stayed down there and stayed in that sort of tight little punk rock scene along the beach, which I did not. So that's where the fictionalization sort of leaps off is an imagined alternate uh, future uh, for the people my friends and I never became. And so it's far darker than the reality because you pumped it up, but it, 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 the seeds of it are, are still pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, look, some of some of the stuff that happened back then and, and then happened from what I've been told after I left, there was there was definitely some darkness. I mean, you had a lot of the cliches around drug abuse and violence and those kinds of things that I think people sometimes think about when they think about hardcore punk rock back in that time. Um, but, you know, where it really becomes fictionalized is Greg Salem is is pushing 40 uh, he's become a police officer, which is really incongruent with sort of what the punk rock ethos was. And and he's kind of coming to terms with who he really is once he loses his badge. And and so uh, the darkness is inherent in both his career and in his background. But I definitely did, you know, kind of put it on steroids. You know, that's uh, interesting. You, you might be surprised. I actually worked with uh, uh, several cops who uh, were musicians in their in their lower or in their earlier in their lower days. <laughs> well, they, both are accurate. <laughs> but that's the thing with music is you, you everybody's good and some people are great. But man, there's a lot of good musicians out there. It's kind of like being a writer. I imagine it's you know the hard part is is yeah okay I've honed my craft to a certain level now I have to get noticed. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. One of the things that uh, my podcast co-host on Writer Types, Eric Beatner, and I often talk about is how similar the indie crime writing scene is to the 
indie punk or the indie music scene in that uh, you kind of have to band together to support each other while you're struggling to sort of break through um, and try to find a readership for the stuff you're writing, uh, which, you know, hard boiled sort of seems like punk rock to me. And I guess that's the end of the pool that I'm often swimming in when I write. And so I think about that a lot and, and, and ways to try to connect with readers who maybe are outside of the mainstream, who wouldn't mind hearing, uh, reading a good story, but maybe aren't the people who are going and, and, and swooping up every mystery or crime book that comes out. And we, we talk about that a lot and how, and how being in bands kind of trains you to always be hustling to try to get your, out, your writing or your music out in front of people. So you, you see a lot of parallels there. Yeah, I mean, some of them I might be kind of forcing my experience onto the reality and that, that other people don't see. But uh, I, I do, on the indie side of publishing, I do see a lot of similarities to being in an up-and-coming rock band. Yeah, for sure. Greg Salem, he, he became a cop after being a, a drummer uh, in, in a band. What, how, how, how old was he when he quit, quit the scene? He's actually the lead singer. So this is, again, oh. where I get to fictionalize myself. I get to, the, the character gets to be at the front of the stage, not the back, uh, and I, which I thought was more interesting. Yeah. You know, he, the, the, his band is sort of infamous more than famous. Um, and, and they have a very terrible, uh, cliched sort of drug-fueled breakup. And the two guys in the band are him and his brother, Tim. Uh, and that's sort of the backstory is him leaving the band in his early 20s and then kind of trying to find his way in the wake of his brother's death, which is ultimately what breaks the band up. Okay. So you're on the third book now. That is coming out soon, right? It comes out January 16th, and it is the final book in the three-book trilogy that I had planned for this character in this universe. Yep. Does that mean never say never again, or uh, is it the plan is it's done? You know, I, I'm just trying to stay true to to the three story or the three book arc that I had in mind for Greg Salem and these other characters that surround him. Uh, there, there's no reason I couldn't write more stuff if there were people who wanted to read it or if I got the urge and decided I wanted to write it. But this does bring to a close the original three books that I had in mind when I sat down to start writing these stories. You know, the, the noir subgenre is filled with cops who are, have uh, dark pasts and everything, but I don't think there's too many of them that I can think of that uh, their dark past rests in the music scene. Am I just not reading the right books? or No, I've, I've, I've found some people who write about bands, um, and I find definitely there are people who came out of the punk scene or the alternative rock scene. You know, I mean, one of the interesting things is if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s, or, you know, came of age in the 80s and the 90s, almost everybody was in a band or knew somebody in a band because, you know, alternative rock was the biggest thing going on at the time. And so people were in bands in high school and then a lot of them continued into bands uh, in college and, and maybe even beyond that and tried to make something of a career out of it. So I think, you know, one, one of the tropes I play with in this series is not only is Greg a former punk musician, but kind of like he runs into a lot of people who are former musicians. There are former musicians who are teachers, et cetera. You know, so it's kind of that the, the landscape is populated with that. But in, in looking around at the indie uh, publishing world, there aren't a lot of um, cops that I found who were former musicians Although I am finding more and more books where rock and roll is sort of the foundation on which the crime or the mystery story is based. Yeah, I've, I've come across that where there's a musical element to uh, 
to, to the story. Uh, and I've seen it done a number of different ways, but having a guy become a cop after being a musician, that one's pretty, uh, that one's pretty unique. But uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, it was, it was kind of tough because it's one of those ideas that you think up and you go like, oh, punk rock cop, that's a great tagline. Um, but then you have to kind of work through how real that is. Um, and to your point, there are people who definitely were uh, punks that grew up to be police officers. And, and I thought, okay, so wh what's the genesis of the character from those? He's sort of an angry, violent punk when he's a kid. So what's that genesis into being law abiding and then beyond law abiding into being in law enforcement. Um, and I thought it sort of sets up the, the, the great um, uh, friction in his life that, that become the two sides of his personality. That really is what the books are about is him exploring that. I mean, he's really just a guy in the middle of just a monumental midlife crisis. <laughs> right. And so um, I think he has to come to terms with the violent person he was or is and the law-abiding person he is or is trying to be. And, and reconciling those things is very difficult for him. Yeah, you're really talking about two very different ends of the uh, personality spectrum in some ways when you talk about you know, musicians and artists versus, versus uh, the people that tend to be drawn towards, towards law enforcement. So that makes it interesting, though. It's kind of uh, an anachronism a little bit, you know? Uh, definitely. But, you know, the the other thing that's funny about it is if you spent any time in the punk rock scene, you know, it's this self-contained little universe or, you know, a universe that eventually grew. But every little scene had its own set of rules. And there were always one or two people in that punk rock scene who were enforcing those rules. Right. Like this is how we dress. These are the kind of haircuts we have. The, these these are the bands we like and these are the bands we don't like. We do drink and do drugs or we don't drink and do drugs. Um, we do fight. We don't fight. These are the clubs we go to. So there there is uh, there there always is this sort of hierarchy of law that gets put on these little punk rock scenes. And I kind of explore that as well. So maybe it wasn't as big a stretch for him as as it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, in some ways. And then, you know, it, it, it becomes this big identity crisis for him when he loses his badge because he's not sure anymore uh, if he ever really identified with being a cop. Um, and so he goes back in and starts to explore his punk rock roots uh, to the point where he's performing again with his band and uh, starts to fall into some of his former violent and self-destructive ways and he kind of has a hard time making a sense of which person he is. That sounds like quite a character study. I'm looking forward to, to, to reading all three of them. So I have that on the horizon. I, I, I really hope you enjoy them. Uh, well, Eric said that uh, he thought I would dig them. And, uh, you know, we, we've done some writing together and kind of bounce things off each other. So I think he's probably a pretty good judge. From what you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm even more excited to read them than I was, which I got a taste of your writing when I read uh, Crosswise. Uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, so did a lot of other people. It was nominated for an Anthony, right? Yeah, that was uh, that was very unexpected and and, and very exciting. And uh, sort of didn't really know how to feel about the Anthony Award when it first happened. Um, what do you mean? You, well, I you know it, it gets an you know you, you, I spent a little bit of time asking people to vote on Facebook and Twitter, but you don't really know how real that's going to be or what that's going to feel like if you get that nomination. Uh, and then you see the other people who are either nominated along with you in your category uh, who are or who are nominated in other categories. And you just have this little bit of a moment of like, wow, 
I'm not sure I'm up to I'm up to that talent <laughs> level, right? Like, uh, you know, maybe I'm an imposter of some sort here. I mean, but it was it well, was obviously we're all imposters are all imposters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you get a little bit of that imposter syndrome with the yeah. like, wow, I really admire all these people. Do I deserve to be here? And so that was that was you talk about a, a, a personality crisis that we were describing for Greg. That's what it was like for me. But then you know, you just you just kind of go like, wow, that's an honor, and and I'm going to enjoy this for what it is. And and it was a lot of fun to be able to go to to Bausha Khan and and see your name uh, as one of the nominees, but also to see a lot of your friends and writers you admire as nominees as well. So, uh, who else was nominated in that category? In my category, it was really interesting. Um, Sarah Chen uh, was up for cleaning up Finn. John Shepard was up for the third book in the the his trilogy. Um, Angel Cologne was up for his most recent novella. Um, and BK Stevens was up for her novella. Um, I got to know BK Stevens a little bit by email before she passed away, which uh, sadly happened before the uh, awards were given out in which she eventually won. And I got to say her husband's speech was absolutely beautiful and very moving. I'm so glad that, that uh, BK Stevens got to take that award uh, posthumously. Um, but the, uh, you know, Sarah and I know each other very well and have done events together. Angel Cologne and I have become very good friends, even though he's in New York. And John Shepard and I have gotten to know each other really well um, through, through author events in Los Angeles. So it was like being surrounded by your friends in that category was also a really fantastic thing that was happening this year. I really love going to conferences. It's something that when I was first breaking in prior to Bad Citizen Corporation coming out, um, which wasn't that long ago, even though my fifth book is coming out. I've only really been publishing for three or four years. Um, but the the first, the BoucherCon was basically in my backyard in 2014. So I got to go, got a chance to go down there and actually see what conferences are about and uh, meet a few of the, the writers I was reading at that time. And, and I got pretty hooked. I like to, I like to go to conferences. I like to spend time with other people who are pursuing the same things that I'm pursuing. Is it just the feeling of like uh, fraternity and fellowship that you get out of it? Or uh, is it that it's a opportunity to drink a lot or what, what's the appeal? <laughs> uh, in my case, since I don't drink anymore, it's a, it's an opportunity to watch other people drink a lot, which is its own <laughs> kind of entertainment. <laughs> uh, de definitely the fraternity, right? Like I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of talk in the crime community that I've fallen into, um, which started out for me on the West coast and then kind of spread to the East coast. And now I know a lot of writers from all across the country and really around the world. Um, it, it, you know, it started, it, it, we talk a lot about our tribe. Did you find your tribe? Meaning, have you found other like-minded people? And my entry into that, again, was music. I was looking for authors who were previously musicians. And, and I found Joe Clifford, and I found Tom Pitts, and I found Eric Beatner, et cetera. And then it kind of grew out from there. And once you have that tribe and that sense of fraternity, it kind of helps you make sense, or at least it helped me make sense of how solitary writing can be and writing and editing can be in the pursuit of finding an agent and, and the pursuit of finding a publisher and all of the rejection and uh, no responses that you get that along the way you develop these friendships and they kind of help you through those times because they're really the only other people around who really know what you're going through and how difficult it can be to find to find an audience to read your books. 
to loop back around to your question about the similarities that I see between the music scene that I kind of came up in and this crime writing community that I, I'm lucky to be a part of now, I was seeking that out. It was something that I very much missed in my life. I mean, I've, I, I've got a good life. I've got a job. I've got a great wife. I've got a fantastic family, you know, but I missed the sense of fraternity, for lack of a better term, that I felt in the music community with like-minded people doing, doing similar things in the pursuit of this art that they were after. And uh, I found that again in crime writing. It's not the same thing exactly, but I do have a group of people that I can lean on. Look, it, the good times, yeah, you want to share that with somebody. Um, the tough times when you're struggling, you want to have somebody you can turn to who you can have a little bit of a shorthand with and you don't have to explain how this isn't just your ego talking, but you feel like your soul and your dreams are being crushed because you got a simple rejection email, right? Um, another writer is going to understand that. Um, just the other day, I got a review for something that I wasn't thrilled with. And I'll, I just texted Eric and we had a conversation about it and I felt a lot better when I got done with that situation. So uh, I think it is important to have a, a strong support network um, when you're trying to do something that is feels like swimming upstream a lot of the time. Well, and the, the way the market is now, I mean, it used to be the difficulty was getting past those gatekeepers, right? You know, I mean, can you get an agent? Can you break into a, a you know, a publisher if they take on agent and material and now you know there's still a gatekeepers there but there's also gaping holes in the walls that people can stream past and, and and get into the courtyard on their own and so now what's the big challenge you know hey how do you get noticed in this vast sea of other writers and mm. and and uh it can be discouraging sometimes i mean uh, uh i scrolled through twitter the other day and i one of the things i noticed as i was scrolling was every fourth or fifth tweet i guess was about somebody's new book being released you know there is a shit ton of people publishing books out there and some of them are terrific uh i happen to know a few people who write some terrific things uh i suspect some of it based on my sampling uh is crap you know and it it's getting harder at first glance i think for readers to to be able to tell the difference you know i mean you know people are getting smart enough that even if they didn't write a good book they spring for a good cover you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, so. <laughs> you know, I look, I I, I kind of have a weird view on that stuff, and I don't think it's a very popular opinion, but I, I still kind of maintain my bright-eyed enthusiasm simply for people putting themselves out there and making art. And, you know, whether or not something's crap is so subjective. And I think that, that, that there's a uh, there's this expectation that everything has to be this specific thing. But if you jump into this with the idea that you want to tell a story that talks about these truths or these things that you see in the world, and this is the way you write it and this is the way you tell it, like that alone deserves applause in my book. And and we can let the market decide about whether or not your writing is strong enough or you, you live up to what expectations were set by a bunch of other writers that you don't know or read, but somehow you're being compared to. I, I think those are market considerations. I, I just applaud the people who are putting themselves out there and making the art. And you look, if, if you're if you're me and you, you get X amount of readers through that and you're able to grow that slowly over the course of time, fantastic. If you're somebody who shoots straight to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, good for you. I'm happy for you because you're, you, you started off the same way as I did and I know how hard it was for you to get there. Or if you, you know, put a book out and it's got a crappy cover and you can't afford an editor, it doesn't mean that your story's bad. It just means that you don't have 
polished art. And, and I, I just think it's so subjective that I try not to, to think about it that way, although it's very tempting, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> I, I applaud your thinking. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and uh, certainly I probably now sound like a complete asshole. But uh, Oh, that was not my intent. No, I, I know it wasn't. Intent. I totally know it wasn't. <laughs> I actually agree with you 100%. I feel the same way about it from an artistic standpoint. I was thinking, uh, I was commenting on it from a uh, more of the marketing standpoint or the business standpoint in that because it's so difficult because of the the quantity out there that results in frustrations or, or letdowns or, or, or rejections or whatever, that it's nice to be able to turn to another writer and go, well, I couldn't get my head above the water on this one because the water's pretty deep because there's so much out there, you know, and they'll understand what you're talking about, you know, immediately. Oh yeah, for sure. And look, it's not like, don't for a second think that I'm not judgmental too. I've got my opinions, you know, there are things to appeal to me and there are things that don't appeal to me. And, and, you know, it, it, you catch me at the right time and I could go on a rant about how much I don't like something. I'm just saying in general, yeah. um, I think I think we've gotten to this place where writing and creating the art has become sort of uh, muddled probably too much with the marketing and promotion of the art, because I feel like authors are left to their own devices to market things these days. And some are better than others at it. And I think it's just not always the most fair way to judge people where it's like, all oh, that guy talks about it on Twitter is his book. And it's like, yeah, because he looks around and that's, that's the perception he sees of what everybody else is doing. Um, and they're just kind of groping along. Like all they wanted to do was tell a story and publish a book. And now they have yeah. to be like marketing experts, you know? <laughs> well, believe me, we're all groping <laughs> along. I'll tell you, I, yeah. I have no, uh, no contempt for people that are, are trying to find a way to get the word out about their, about their books. Um, and Twitter is a great, great way to do that. I just was struck by the fact that there were so many people doing that. There's just, there's so much out there. Well, the smart ones, obviously, Frank, start podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to our discussion with S.W. Loudon uh, in a little bit here. But first, I uh, wanted to uh, share with you some book recommendations. Uh, usually, we talk to a particular brand of expert here. We talk about uh, books with people who work in bookstores or own bookstores. Uh, and that works out really well. Uh, but for this episode, I thought I'd try something different since it's the uh, end of the year episode. And uh, looking back over the uh, first nine uh, episodes of Wrong Place, Right Crime, uh, I thought I'd ask a few of the uh, previous guests if they had some recommendations. And so a few of them stepped up to the plate. Let's hear what they have to recommend for you to read this holiday season. <laughs> Hi, this is Sarah M. Chen, author of Cleaning Up Finn, and I'd like to recommend Ivy Pachota's Wonder Valley. And all you need to know really is it opens with a naked man running down the 110 freeway in downtown LA. And the story unfolds through different points of view. It goes back and forth in time. And eventually you learn who this man is and why he's running. And it's beautiful prose. It's a melancholy, gritty, yet hopeful story. And I think it's going to win many awards next year. And I couldn't stop thinking about the book after I finished it. And if I have time, I'd also like to recommend a book I'm currently reading, Nikki Dolson's All Things Violent. And she's a short story writer. This is her debut novel, and I'm a big fan of her short stories. And it's set in Vegas, and it features a 
badass assassin. She's basically an, a normal young woman, except for the assassin part. And it's got this wicked humor. It uh, features, it centers around her relationship with her boss, which is complicated, and as well as her trainer, the guy who um, taught her how to be a professional killer. And I'm really loving it. So those are my two recommendations. Thanks, Frank. Hi, this is Jerry Keneally, author of Polo's Longshot, and due out this spring from Down and Out Books' Dirty Who, a thriller set around the filming of Dirty Harry in San Francisco. I just finished S.W. Lawden's latest, Crossbones. Terrific read. Mr. Lawden has created two fantastic characters, Tommy Russo and Shayna Billups, who are Nick and Nora on steroids. Buy the book and join the fun. This is Eric Beatner, author of the Lars and Shane trilogy, starting with The Devil Doesn't Want Me and the final book, The Devil at Your Door, is out early next year. And speaking of next year, I want to tell you about a book that you're going to be lucky enough to get your hands on in January, but I've already read it, so ha ha ha. But it's called Walk in the Fire by Steph Post. And this is the sequel to her novel Lightwood, which came out at the beginning of last year, which was absolutely fantastic. One of my favorite reads of 2017. And Walk in the Fire, I think, is going to be making a lot of lists of best ofs come next year. She really nails the southern fried noir of Florida, where she's from. And but the Florida that she writes about is not a Florida I would ever want to visit. <laughs> this is uh, a multifaceted crime story uh, about some losers and desperate folks who you kind of can't help root for. And Steph just does an amazing job of balancing several parallel storylines uh, and keeps the action flowing and the prose is just spot on so if you haven't read lightwood check that out you got a couple of weeks before the second one walk in the fire comes out and you will thank me when you read them both well there you have it folks uh authors read a lot and they know what they're talking about when they recommend a good book uh, so thanks to sarah chen uh, to uh, Jerry Keneally and Eric Beatner for making those recommendations. All three previous uh, guests on Wrong Place, Right Crime. In fact, Jerry Keneally was the guest in the previous episode, and uh, one of the things I failed to mention was that uh, Jerry was awarded the I Lifetime Achievement Award 2017 from the Private Eye Writers of America. A pretty prestigious award, and for it to be a Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, that's... Uh, that's something else again, and uh, I completely forgot to ask him about that during our discussion and being a gentleman and, and humble as many writers are, he didn't bring it up either, um, but uh, I thought I'd take the opportunity to mention it now as he's uh, coming on the show to uh, support other writers, actually specifically S.W. Loudon, and he, whose book he recommended. Uh, and so uh, with that, let's get back to our discussion with S.W. Loudon. I guess that's a rather clumsy segue to back, uh, swing back around to Crosswise. Uh, we touched on it that it was uh, nominated for an Anthony, but that's not a Greg Salem story. That's uh, a completely different, I guess now it's a series technically, right? Yeah, there, uh, the, there are two books, two novellas 
in the the crosswise series there's crosswise which is the first book and then crossed bones and i refer to them as tommy and Shayna crime capers so uh crosswise takes place down in florida and you've got a another disgraced ex-cop as the lead <laughs> yeah. um where'd that come from that's funny you mentioned the 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 disgraced cop link between the two things i'm consciously trying not to write the next story that i write about a disgraced cop i think it was an easy way for me to get certain sets of skills and a gun into somebody's hand um and and maybe you know maybe i've worked that through my system or at least i hope i'm not the guy who continually writes about disgraced cops but we'll see time will tell um you know it works it works yeah, it you know it does it does get you into the story quicker. Um, I could just as easily make somebody a, a hit man or a hit woman, and or make somebody um, you know a, a, an ex Navy SEAL. Like there's all kinds of ways you can get certain sets of experiences and weapons into people's hands. Um, but you know, Crosswise was started off as a short story that I wrote while on vacation in Florida on the Panhandle. Um, in the sort of Destin, Panama Beach area. And it's got like, you know, crystal clear water and these white sand beaches and these like idyllic beach cottages with, you know, uh, pastel painted clapboard sidings and, you know, southern food and friendly people. And I was just walking along and thinking, man, this would be a really great place to set a murder, um, which is what, what as crime and mystery writers were kind of afflicted with. And so I, I decided to kind of play with tropes in this short story. And, and I'm like, you know, when you think about Florida, what do you think about? You know, you think about, you know, retired New Yorkers. You think about retirement homes. You think about, um, you know, the, the circuses that would vacation there in the off season and sort of just sort of the funky vibe that Florida has as sort of a melting pot of a lot of different people from around the world and from the South. And so I kind of blended that all together in this short story and basically put a disgraced NYPD cop named Tommy Russo loses his badge and chases a, a girl down to Florida and she's a hellraiser and it's her hometown and they get down there and he gets a job as the head of security at an old folks home, um, which isn't a very glamorous or high paying job. So Shana leaves him and now he's stuck in Florida with this terrible job and page one of the book, he's discovering a body at the old folks home and decides that this is not only how he's going to win his, his job back with the NYPD or, or in law enforcement, but also how he's going to win Shayna back. And that and that's where the story sets off. Which is funny to me when I read it, because the first part is ridiculous. I mean, there's no way he's getting his job back. And I think you I think you make that clear. I mean, I think you make it clear that's like uh, he's deceiving himself there. People people hold that carrot out for him, but he's never going to chew on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the getting Shana back part, that's achievable. That's that. That's always a potential. Um, what's the dynamic between those two? Oh, besides <laughs> so being uh, a destructive relationship, it's a really destructive relationship. She is. She is um, such a overblown version of the sort of bad girl trope, leading the the law abiding good good guy into the the darker parts of our society and so she's got a cocaine problem and she likes to party and she's got a very checkered past and and um really that's that's what happens is she convinces tommy to take some cocaine from the the evidence locker in new york for her use and uh he gets caught he loses his badge 
And he's just so head over heels, blind in love with this woman that he can't see that she's going to bring nothing but trouble and pain into his life. And that's really the dynamic. He's just blind in love with her. Um, so they have a little bit of a Bonnie and Clyde kind of vibe going on. He's kind of perpetually uh, a hangdog about her and can't believe that she's treating him the way that she obviously treats the rest of the world. And so he spends a lot of time pining away for her. Now, they're, there's, they're in the second book as well. I haven't read that one yet. Where, what's the setting on that one? Is it still well, in Florida? Or? Yeah, it starts off in Florida um, without giving too much away. The two of them separate sort of irrevocably at the end of the first book, or so it seems. So when, uh, when the first book, when the, sorry, when the second book starts, uh, Crossed Bones, um, Tommy is alone in Florida in Shana's hometown, but she's split and no one knows where she is. Um, and so there's two parallel stories going on. One, Shana's adventure after she's gotten out of her hometown and escaped sort of all of the uh, turmoil she caused in her wake. And then there's Tommy's story of waiting around for her to come back slash maybe going out and trying to find her and those two storylines converge in a fictional town in North Carolina that I created. And it's one of these like vacation towns that's built around one, uh, one historical figure, which is a fictional pirate sort of along the lines of Blackbeard. Um, and it really turns into a treasure hunt story. And there's, there's a lot of fun I'm able to have with pirates, but the story's told both from Tommy's perspective and Shana's perspective. Whereas the first book is mostly told from Tommy's perspective. Do you see any more uh, capers coming down the pike? You know, I've talked to Eric at Down and Out about it, and um, I'm sort of in the same spot with that series where I am with the Greg Salem books, where I think that there's definitely more stories to tell there, but I don't know that I'll do them anytime soon. Well, something you are doing a lot is uh, Writer Types, the podcast. You guys are up to episode, is it 11 that's just coming out or 11 that just came out? It's we've we started it in January of 2017, and so we've done one monthly episode. So the twelfth one, the December episode, is actually coming out a few days after you and I are recording this. And then along the way, we've also done a few special episodes. We've done two crime quiz episodes, and then Those I think were we awesome. did. Oh, thank you. I, they're they're, they're a, lot a lot of fun, fun. to do. And then um, we also did a, uh, a special report on Noir at the Bar um, in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. um, which is something that Eric founded a few years back with Stephen Blackmore. And then you had a special BoucherCon edition too, didn't you? The BoucherCon edition, because of where it landed, ended up being the 11th episode. I'm oh, sorry, okay. ended up being the 10th episode, the October oh, that's episode. Right. That's right. But that was a lot of fun because Eric and I were there together. We were both nominated for awards. And so basically we spent the whole time in Toronto running around with our phones on voice memo mode, recording quick interviews with authors in the hallways. And I imagine people were pretty receptive to that. Um, most of them. Yeah. I mean, we certainly had to introduce ourselves to a lot of people. They didn't naturally know who we were. Um, and but we were we were definitely in in reporter mode, which is kind of interesting because we are there as authors, but then it was fun to be able to kind of flip it and, and turn the spotlight on, on other authors and get to know them and talk about their writing and why they like to go to places like BoucherCon or other conferences. And it was just a really great way to connect with people, a different way to connect with people. And is that the, the reason why you guys did writer types uh, to begin with is to have those kind of interactions? 
Uh, yes and no. You know, again, coming back to that original question about the intersection of, of the music community and, and the writing community for Eric and I, you know, we both come from playing in rock bands in Hollywood. And it's something that he and I bonded over very early. Um, one of the things that's really pronounced in the music community, especially when you're in that phase of trying to find a label where you when you're an up and coming band, a lot of bands and a lot of artists will band together and book shows together and do cross promotion and get shows out of town together and and play on each other's demos and help support each other. So it's a very supportive community. And Eric and I really wanted to bring that or continue continue to have that in our lives to the writing community. And so he, he and I were separately setting up readings and I was doing blog interviews and he was doing noir at the bar. And we kind of saw pretty eye to eye on the idea that up and coming authors should be supporting other authors. And we really got a kick out of that. That's obviously a great way to network and get to know people as well, which is also what happens in the, in the music community. So we booked a, an author event at a bookstore called mysterious galaxy in San Diego and decided to carpool together and on the drive down there, he played a bunch of his super, super, super obscure indie and punk rock music for me. And then we got to talking about podcasts that we like listening to. And by the time we'd gotten to San Diego, we had we had kind of said, you know, if we were ever to start a podcast, this is the kind of podcast we would do. It would be a variety show. There would be a variety of voices, mm -hmm. different people talking about different kinds of books uh, wouldn't be long form. It would be, uh, be a series of shorter interviews. We'd have short stories. We'd try to do events. So then we got to the bookstore. We did the event, and then we drove the two hours home. By the time we got to L.A. again, we already were sketching out what our podcast was going to look like. And then we met again, and then we just launched it. Well, it's a slick production. For me, it has kind of that early morning drive sort of uh, sense to it. Like you're driving to work in the morning, and it's, you know, you know you know mike fred and molly in the morning let's talk to this guy let's do this skit let's read from the and it, you know and it's bam 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 and the humor is great and it's light but you ask some serious questions too and you do get to know a little something about the about the authors both as a person and their work and so i think it's a it's a great podcast i love it well thank you that i'm glad that it kind of comes across um the 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 humor I think was inherent in in the relationship that Eric and I had developed. We you know, we we have a lot of fun with each other when we're going out for a cup of coffee or we're we're at a reading and we're just kind of you know goofing around with each other. It's pretty funny. And I think initially, we kind of tried to downplay that a little bit. On the first few episodes, we were just trying to like let's make this about the authors and let's just ask some serious questions. And we had fun. And we we quickly pretty pretty quickly realized was that. Um, we got uh, a deeper connection with the with the authors and the industry professionals we were talking to by letting our personality hang out a little bit. And and Eric is a, a little more dry than I am. Um, I'm a little more over the top. And so we've kind of settled on this. Uh, you know, he he's the Conan and I'm the Andy Richter. And it seems to be working. <laughs> <laughs> Or Abbott and Costello. <laughs> That's funny that you say that. We just we got asked to um, record a segment uh, for a new podcast that's being launched by Jay Stringer and and Amy Chantel Osman, and they they had us re just record a bit for them. And by the end of it, I was like, Oh my god, we're turning into Abbott and Costello. And Eric was like, Turning into? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. 
Well, we, we heard, we've heard a lot about you as a writer. I want to find out a little bit more about Steve the guy. And in order to do that, I, I've gone to the most uh, reliable place this side of Wikipedia, swloudon.com, the bio page. Oof. <laughs> First off, this picture, man, is this really what you look like? Because I'm looking at you on the screen here, and you look different than that. Um, I guess it's the hat. I guess it's the hat. Yeah, well, people are always saying much... that I wear hats too much. But yeah, that is that picture, that black and white picture, if it's the one I'm thinking of, uh, yeah. is what I look like when I'm trying to be quote unquote cleaned up. But wow. I, I don't cl make the effort to clean up very often. So what you you're saying on the studious. screen is. Yeah, that's that, that. You know what that is, is a picture at a friend's wedding. <laughs> the wedding photographer took that picture of me and I was like, OK, well, I think probably that's closer to what I look like when I'm doing my day job, Monday through Friday, nine to five. What is that day job? Uh, I do sales and marketing for a media company. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So what else about SW Loudon, Steve Loudon? Well, it says your favorite color is gray. That is a surprise with your personality. I would expect it to be something else. What I guess that reflects back on your punk rock. I, uh, slash, noir <laughs> affinities yeah uh uh i'm not a very fashionable person um and I, I don't really understand fashion and so i think i'm somebody who retreats into safe basic clothes and colors like i'm constantly like just give me a pair of 501s and a black band t-shirt and some some converse low tops and i'm good to go you know um but the the gray thing is funny actually where that now that i'm thinking about my bio where that came from was um, my wife constantly telling me how terrible a dresser I am. And there was a weekend where I put on um, an outfit. She's like, we have to go and do X, Y, and Z. And I was like, okay, let me get dressed. And I got dressed and I realized that like I was wearing like four or five different shades of gray that did not look to get like, didn't look good together. Like the socks were gray. The shoes were gray. The, the shorts were gray. The, the jacket was gray. My hat was gray. And I looked in the mirror and I turned to her and I said, why would you let me dress like this? And she's like, there's no point in trying to tell you differently. And so that's, that's sort of where the grayness came from. She's got you figured out. <laughs> well, it's been a lot of years we've spent together. She's a very patient, wonderful person. Uh, you got Kurt Vonnegut, just Kurt Vonnegut listed on here. He's the guy that turned me on to the idea that I loved reading. Like I, I, I was not a, a big reader as a kid. And even in my early teens, I, I had no affinity for reading that even though my dad read pretty often, we weren't a family that like read books and talked about reading and, and spent time reading around the fire. Um, and so my waking up to punk rock and, and alternative rock and going deep into that world was really hand in hand with discovering literature. And often the guy who was handing me a Husker Du CD was also handing me a Kurt Vonnegut book. Um, so they really went hand in hand for me. And Kurt Vonnegut was the first writer I read where I was like, I like reading, not only when it's assigned to me, but I like actually enjoyed this and I can't wait to read the next Kurt Vonnegut book. And, and lucky for me, it was at a time where he had already published a, a lot of his greatest works. And so I could just go back and read them uh, of my own free will. And then, you know, as with most readers you meet and when you talk to them about it, once that spark has lit that fire, you're just off to the races and then you're finding everybody. But like Vonnegut was that portal for me into knowing that I was a reader and that I loved literature. Well, anybody that can do that for somebody else is a hero, if you ask me. I mean, uh, 
it's it is it is telling that it was Kurt Vonnegut that did it for you though. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was he uh, I always kind of thought of him and I'm sure I'm not the first person to think this, but I always kind of thought of him as like my grumpy great uncle or my great uh, my grumpy great grandfather or something like not great grandfather my great my grumpy grandfather um and and uh i i used him as sort of a, an example of thinking differently about our society and about our culture because again it was it was at the same time that i was discovering a lot of my favorite bands and so it was this this opportunity to dive into the counterculture um specifically because it was it was uh, brought to my attention by other people my age and there's so much that's important about that it wasn't a teacher or a parent handing it to me i felt like i was discovering it through my peers and so that put him on a even higher pedestal than it probably would have been had it come from my english lit teacher or something in high school yeah when you discover something on your own it always has more appeal and and uh, which which uh, book of his is your favorite uh, I just went back and reread Breakfast of Champions, and I think that one definitely stands out. Although uh, Welcome to the Monkey House is the one, which is a short story collection of his, that uh, that I was always most fond of. But m- more recently, I think Breakfast of Champions was the one where I went like, wow, you can write a book like this and you can use that kind of language and you can have chapters that are only two pages long. And like it just was all very mind-blowing to me. Um, what the possibilities were. And it's just like he was so pointedly breaking so many rules um, that I kind of discovered rules wrong because of him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you got a couple of people on this page that I have no idea who they are. So maybe you can educate me. Who is Mark Rothko? He was a he's a mid 20th century painter who made these huge canvases that were mostly just fields of color overlapped. So very abstract. Um, but if you go into like the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, they have this one room um, where his paintings line all the walls and you can sit literally sit in a bench in the middle of the room and be surrounded by all these muted colors on these huge canvases. And, you know, in my uh, late high school days and, and early college days, I would sometimes make that trek down there by myself or with friends and just spend time in that room because it had this really bizarre emotional effect on me. Um, as you can tell, I'm a pretty energetic person. Some would say hyper. Um, and, and there was something about his artwork that really calmed me down when I was still a very young man and trying to find my way. And this, this all goes again, hand in hand with discovering those bands, discovering reading, and then by extension, discovering the other arts at the same time. So Rothko is the Kurt Vonnegut, but in the, in the visual arts world for me. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, what about Robin Hitchcock? What's the connection there? Well, he, he was just a favorite artist of mine growing up. He's interesting because he played in an early English punk band called the Soft Boys. And then he went on to have a, a pretty notable and successful solo career. And he, he's kind of a guy that goes back and mines the Beatles and mines like uh, Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd and, and writes almost like borderline absurdist lyrics to these otherwise pretty pop songs, even though he can just write a straight up pretty pop song as well. But he's sort of... Uh, become a troubadour over the course of time and then just sort of travels the world playing his guitar and, and having this really unique outlook. So he's somebody I always admired for just kind of going his own way in his music career, regardless of whether or not he was having commercial success at the moment. 
Yeah, it would seem like he must have flown under the, at least under the top end of the, the radar because uh, I'd never heard of him before. Maybe I'm just ignorant, but I think it's it's uh, one of those things where you, you talk about doing art for the sake of art or or uh, doing it at a, you know, whatever level it gets noticed. Uh, there, there would seem is, is a good example of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, his stuff is the guy can write a hook. The guy can write a like perfect melody. The guy can write a fantastic hooky poppy love song, but he just prefers to spend his time in in sort of psychedelic tinged rock and roll. And uh, there's nothing quite like him out there. I I would highly recommend him if you if you like the Beatles, if you like Pink Floyd or you just like a good pop hook, you should just go dig his stuff up on YouTube. Um, you can start with the soft boys stuff like I, I, I want to destroy you is probably their most famous song. Um, but, you know, he, he then went in pretty quickly in his solo career into stuff like my wife and my dead wife uh, going later in his career. There's there's a, a song called Yip where he's just repeating the word Yip over and over. But it's really, really, really good. And uh, or if you if you if you think you're in love, that's another great one. He's just he's great. And he's still he's still around and he's still performing and he's, you know, he'll, he'll pop up and just do like a, a a whole show of just one of his records with incredible LA musicians, or you'll hear he's doing a whole Beatles record in London. Um, He's just an interesting, soulful, very artistic guy. I can see why you'd put him on here. I see why you like him. So finish off your, your page here. All these make sense except for one. So you got mountain bikes, Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. Which we addressed in your uh, in your quick hits uh, piece uh, in, in Jerry Kennelly's show, uh, burritos, bears, descendants, and it looks to me like it's a title, not uh, uh, and it's spelled differently, so it must be a book or something. And high fives. So that's the one I don't understand. Descendants. What's that? Descendants is actually a punk band from my hometown. So we're going right back to the beginning of this ah. interview and this this conversation you and I are having. Uh, the Descendants were sort of they came out of the hardcore scene in Southern California and they actually went to my high school some years before me. Um, but they played a brand of hardcore punk rock that like owed as much to like the beach boys as it did to the like bands like black flag. And there was always poppy hooks and and they're kind of considered the, the grandfathers of pop punk that eventually gave you bands like green day and blink 182 and those kinds of bands. And and so they're hometown boys, they're punk rock guys, uh, they're all really smart and kind of nerdy, um, and they're still kicking. I went and saw them play at the Palladium two, two years ago, and they were still fantastic, you know, and these guys are in their 50s. Um, so they're, they're just, uh, they're probably one of my all-time favorite Southern California punk rock bands and are often mentioned in the Greg Salem books. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that, that's, we're, we're full circle there, you know? Uh, yeah, you know, I like closure of, of all the bands that you mentioned. The only one that I knew was Black Flag. So, hey, yeah. look how ignorant I am about pop, about uh, punk music, man. Well, look, here's here's what I'm finding out. I thought I had a good hook with the, the punk rock cop thing, um, but I'm, I'm actually finding out that a lot of readers 
I, I just kind of thought that everybody knew this punk rock stuff that I knew. And I'm finding out a lot of readers didn't, that there was that there wasn't as much bleed as I thought there was going to be. So it's been interesting because it's allowed me to have conversations with people and fly that flag and, and be proud of, of these bands and, and introduce people to things that they might not otherwise have discovered. And that's always fantastic because they're teaching you and you're teaching them. And is that's like the benefit of a conversation, right? Yeah. And I think, uh, hopefully I'm correct in saying that there are people who are not technically punk, who have some serious punk elements to their, to their music, who, who I do like, like I, I've always really liked Joan Jett and, you know, she's not strictly punk, but she has kind of a punk edge to, to her live performances. If you've ever seen her. Oh, she was in, she was in one of the uh, earliest all punk, uh, all female punk bands called the runaways. Yeah. With, uh, with Lita Ford, right? That's right. Lita Ford went into metal and Joan Jett kind of went into like straight ahead rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you're right. It's it's one of those things you have a conversation, you, you learn something. Uh, certainly learned a lot from you today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a, it's a wonderful conversation. And I, I really appreciate your time and, and sticking with me through all the technical dif- difficulties of trying to record this episode. Well, it's me that should be thanking you for that because uh, <laughs> technical uh, problems, I think, were, were on my end with the recording software. But uh, thanks for sticking it out. I look forward to hanging out with you in the future. And uh, I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, so the book, uh, Hang Time third book in the greg salem series is coming out in january which day exactly january 16th from rare bird books all right so uh pick it up folks and uh and if you haven't read uh crosswise yet uh, i can tell you firsthand that's a a good story as well crosswise is pretty funny and and uh easy to follow it's very well very well written thank you so much man i'm glad you enjoyed it we'll talk to you again soon all right man well, there you go, folks. Now you are in the know uh, when it comes to S.W. Loudon, a great writer, a really cool guy. I like him a lot. I'm looking forward to getting to know him better as uh, as we get to interact uh, more often. His book, Crosswise, uh, was nominated for an Anthony and uh, deserved it. It was a, a great book, uh, really easy to follow, good, good twists, and uh, an engaging character. And you, uh, as the reader, you, you felt sorry for him, but at the same time, you... Uh, couldn't help shaking your head at some of the things he was doing so that's good writing when 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 that's going on our next episode will feature uh alexandra amour our first canadian on the show who has a particularly interesting writing journey and uh some uh some things about her that you you might find interesting uh, including the fact that she was once involved in a cult so let's hear a little bit from Alexandra Amore. Alexandra Amore, what city do you live in now? I live in a tiny town on the west coast of Vancouver Island called Euclid. Who's your favorite writer? At the moment, it's a woman named Cynthia Herod Eagles who writes mystery novels. She's uh, in England. Your favorite movie? Lone Star by John Sayles. Favorite television show? I don't own a TV, but I do have Netflix. And so lately I'm loving Godless. Do you have a nickname? I do. It's this weird word that my brother used to say when he was learning to speak. It's duio, which was how he pronounced girl. What are you working on right now? I'm working on a novella, part of a series of historical mystery novels that I write that are set in 1890 in British Columbia. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? I like to cross-stitch. Your favorite sport? Well, I don't think this qualifies as a sport, but I love to walk. It does not qualify as a sport. (laughs) Next answer. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Well, baseball then. Okay. Who's your favorite musician? Well, my favorite band is Blue Rodeo, so I'll go with them. Your five-second advice to aspiring writers. Learn to deal with resistance by reading The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Where would you like to go that you've never been? France. What's your favorite quote? When people show you who they are the first time, believe them. And who said that? Maya Angelou. Cool. And there you go, a quick introduction to Alexandra Moore. You'll get to know her better in the January episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'd like to thank uh, Eric Campbell for uh, sponsoring the show, uh, Down and Out Books. Uh, and I'd like to thank uh, Steve Loudon, S.W. Loudon, author of Crosswise and the Greg Salem series, for coming on the show. Uh, it took us a while to get past some technical difficulties, but it all worked out in the end, and I was glad for it. Great guy, uh, great fellow writer, and I really appreciate him taking the time to come have a conversation here. And until next time, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.